This is All In. I'm Miriam Sobe. A December report issued by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, indicated an increase in overdose deaths during the pandemic, with a health alert issued to healthcare providers saying in part that there was a concerning acceleration of the increase in drug overdose deaths, with the largest increase between March and May of 2020, coinciding with the implementation of widespread mitigation measures for the COVID-19 pandemic. In other words, when lockdowns were first implemented last year, that's when the numbers started to go up. The report shows that the opioid crisis is far from over, and there's still much work to be done in terms of education and intervention. One way that education is being implemented locally in our state is through an exhibit at the Indiana State Museum and Historic Sites. We'll get into that in a moment, but first I'd like to introduce our two guests with us this afternoon. Kathy Furry is CEO of the Indiana State Museum and Historic Sites, and Jim Reiser is a former director of chronic pain and chemical dependency dependency at IU Health and is a person in recovery. Welcome both of you to the program. Glad to be here. So Jim, I'd like to start with you. Uh, What have you seen so far during the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of opioid use in Indiana? As a very active member of the recovery community, what I've seen is more struggles staying sober. You know, a lot of folks, there's so many different options out there. Um, for help, but the consistency is a little bit lax. So, but one of the things that I've seen is just a lot of isolation and hopelessness, uh, which definitely fuels the disease of addiction. Um, you know, the, the, the primary cause, uh, the primary root of the trouble is what we in the big book say, selfishness and self-centeredness. But the reality is, is that not being able to be among friends and be together and have fellowship is definitely making a big difference in the uh, increase of uh, problems. And, And that's interesting you say that because I think a lot of people may think that being more social leads to getting involved in, in different substances because you're around a lot of people and there's peer pressure, but you're saying that the isolation actually caused people to be more, um, I guess, uh, falling off the wagon, so to speak. Yeah, it it really is because people don't have that connection with others that help them stay in sobriety and in recovery. Um, Certainly some of the different um, online meetings and things of that nature are very helpful. Um, It's actually been a real boon for me personally because I've been so involved in making sure that people can uh, get on Zoom and things of that nature so they can um, have some connection. But just that, that connection that you actually feel with another human being is compromised and it is very difficult uh, for a lot of folks, especially in new sobriety. Um, I've known people who have just been in the online meetings who are sober, and you can see there's just a little bit of a difference. Um, They're just missing that real personal connection, the the touch, the hugs, those things. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of of, uh, having in-person connections and stuff, Kathy, you have an exhibit out at, at the Indiana State Museum and Historic Sites. Can you tell us about this exhibit and why you decided to take on the topic of opioid use in Indiana? So the exhibition is called Fix Heartbreak and Hope Inside Our Opioid Crisis. Um, And I think Jim has um, really uh, elevated the reason that we did this. Um, Many times people will talk about um, illnesses or diseases that they have, um, and substance abuse disorder is in fact a disease, but it is not one we are comfortable talking about. Um, People don't know a lot about it. They don't understand it. Um, Museums are a place where we invite you in to be curious and ask questions and learn more information about things. Um, The topic of substance abuse disorder, you start to ask too many questions, people start to question you. 
And we know that in museums that we are encouraging you to ask questions and felt that we were a great venue. We are um, a public institution. We are not a health center. We are not a school. Um, we're a place where you can be comfortable um, learning about a subject that is difficult, um, but not as accessible as it needs to be in order for everyone to stay in recovery and, and for people to understand and build that empathy that's so important. Now, Kathy, a lot of people, when they think of museums, might think of a place that holds, you know, keys to the past or like lessons learned from the past. And this is very much still an ongoing thing. How are you able to implement that into your exhibit? Uh, the opioid crisis goes back as far as um, Mary Todd Lincoln. We, um, Susanna Kerber, who is our chief curator, um, went back in history and looked, and you can see reference to um, this is not a new um, disease for um, Americans. It is just one we continue to learn more and more about and better understand. Um, museums are a place that we want to um, have an influence on our communities and serve them in a way that they need us. And we saw this as a place where we could help make a difference for Hoosiers across the state of Indiana. Mm -hmm. Now, Jim, when you hear that, um, for example, this isn't a new disease, it's something that's been around for a while and, and this, this exhibit is showing the history of that. Does that give some validation or, or sense of, I don't even know if it's the right word, like a closure for people that are going through this to know that this is something that's always been there? I think so. I mean, I've, I've gotten to see the exhibit and it is absolutely amazing. Um, as, as a, I, I would think that people not in recovery will get just as much as people in recovery. The thing that I appreciated about it is that it really brought person to the disease. You know, we have kind of a, um, the, the, that I that I've seen is you know it, you see the the statistics and so you don't really see the people and the and the the exhibit shows you the the personal feeling that you get and and all of the different treatment thought processes and of course it's such a stigmatized disease because there's a belief that there was a choice and um, I I think that. The, the thing that I liked the most about it was the variety of different things that you can see. And again, just the personal touch that you, that you get from it and the interactive stuff. It's really amazing. Really amazing. Yeah. Well, we, we'd like to learn more about this uh, exhibit. Um, I, obviously we can't go right at this moment because we're on this show, but Kathy, can you give us a little breakdown of like what we can expect at this exhibit? So um, Jim is correct. What we're looking for is to help break down the stigma. But what we know about people is that everyone learns in a different way. They have different interests. They have different learning styles. So we make sure that there are multiple entry points into an exhibition. We know from research that if we can bring you in because you're interested in science, that you'll then move to the humanities and to the history and to the art. But if we don't have that science there for you to connect to initially, um, then you're, we're unable to get the rest of the story told. So we have told this from multiple perspectives. The science is very important to help people understand that this is, in fact, a disease. We have a giant brain in the exhibition that can help you see what happens to the synapses. You can actually see what happens um, to people's brains um, when they um, are affected by opioids, which, again, helps to bring that to reality. We've also then had the privilege of working with 16 very courageous people across the community who came forward to tell their story. Because what we felt was important was that people in recovery and people who have experienced this, that's who needed to tell the story, not the museum, but those people who knew and could understand it. And we were grateful to them. 
um, because they are helping break down that stigma by their presence. Um, what we also know is that uh, recovery is such an incredible, um, important part of this story. So the exhibition um, brings you in, teaches you about the history, um, offers you an opportunity to look about pain and how to different thresholds of pain um, and how people can, you know, some people can go to the dentist and it's no big deal. Other people spend days worrying about it. Um, so pain affects all of us in different different ways, which happens to also lead into um, the opioid um, pain situation. So helping people really sort of look at themselves, we want to put the visitor into this experience to understand why it's important to them. Um, we help put it in context for you. Um, we do hope that we continue to learn. Um, you know, when we had uh, the AIDS crisis, uh, we knew little to none about that. Um, we did not handle that as gracefully as I um, think any of us would like to have. And so we are hoping that by doing an exhibition like this and, and getting the information out there and highlighting um, the important things that people know, that we can help break down that stigma and hopefully move this crisis um, forward in a way for everyone to build empathy and understanding. And, and what has the reaction been so far, Kathy, to this exhibit? Well, um, I have a quote that I can read from someone who just visited the exhibition, um, and they said, this is a thoughtful, grounded, and empathetic empathetic exhibition. As a parent um, who lost a 21-year-old son to an opioid overdose in 2013, I am humbled, affected participant in this round of our time. Bold educational initiative like this sound, like this should be championed and commended. Meaningful change begins with understanding. So you can see where um, if we can bring you in and engage you, um, if you're an art person, we have some incredible art pieces. Um, the art is a part of the exhibition. They're interactive. Um, there's a fort. Um, Phil Campbell is an artist who is also a recovery coach. So he tells that story and you go in and you hear his story and pull that out and you're in um, sort of that cocoon, that sort of community that Jim was referring to that is so important to many people in recovery. We do, in fact, um, uh, Jim Ursay has um, loaned us uh, the big book. So we do have the original big book in the exhibition, um, which is an incredibly powerful artifact. Um, and then we really have that chance to give you um, some hope. Um, we talk about Narcon and, and how to use that and how easy it is to do and how it can save someone's lives um, and give you some tools. So we hope that when you leave the exhibition that you can do three things. One, change your language. Um, so there's an interactive experience where it helps you understand that words have meaning. Um, so you use the word sober as Jim has rather than clean. Um, so if you can start to move your um, the vocabulary away from words that are offensive, that can help you better relate um, and have people be able to hear you and feel that empathy. We ask that you get Narcon training. And then we ask that you reach out to someone that you think may need some help. So we um, bring you in, we help you understand uh, what the disease is, how it is affecting people. We show you ways of recovery through yoga and art and meditation. Um, and then we ask you um, to help society and community and your neighbors and probably a family member. There are very few people who are more than one removed um, who have been affected by substance abuse disorder. Um, and our hope is that we can help um, bring that community together um, the way Jim is referring to and how important it is. So it sounds like this is a very all-encompassing exhibit and that it also uh, can be sort of therapeutic for families who've, who've 
uh, suffered a loss due to this. Well, we're going to talk more about uh, this exhibit. I also want to get some more details from Jim just about the community, how they're handling things now, and uh, what's next for the future of uh, – the state tackling this crisis. If you have questions or comments on our show today, let us know on Facebook or Twitter at All in Indiana. You can also leave us a voicemail at 866-476-3881. We'll be back with our guests after a quick break. We're talking about opioid use during the pandemic at a powerful exhibit open now at the Indiana State Museum and Historic Sites. I'm Miriam So back in 90 seconds. This is All in. This is All In. I'm Miriam Sobe. The opioid crisis is far from over, and Indiana has seen its share of an increase in substance abuse. Part of the effort to tackle the crisis locally is by educating the public about the ongoing epidemic through an exhibit at the Indiana State Museum and Historic Sites. With us is CEO Kathy Faree and Jim Reiser, former director of chronic pain and chemical dependency at IU Health. Now, I I keep tripping on that word for some reason. I I see you guys smiling there. (laughs) Uh, But, Jim, let's, let's talk about how the recovery community has been able to persevere through this pandemic. I know a little earlier you mentioned that uh, being isolated, it's more of a trigger for people um, than we may realize. We might think if you're by yourself, then what what harm can you do? So can you take us through what the process is like for people right now during uh, the pandemic and how they're able to persevere? Sure. You know, um, I, I come from an old school. I got sober in Cleveland, Ohio, 21 years, 21 and a half years ago. And so I came from very old school and um, meetings were a huge that that was the thing. And so initially, I think that was really frightening for a lot of folks. I'm severely immunosuppressed, so I've got some health problems. And that's part of what sort of took me out of the business of recovery, if you will. And uh, I was scared to death because I didn't want to, you know, here, here, here we are. And I'm like, my sobriety is the most important thing in my life. I don't know what I'm going to do. And so um, I immediately got involved in Zoom and uh, started Zoom meetings. Uh, another friend of mine in recovery did. And what's been really nice about that has been the, uh, the access that people were able to get from places that they normally wouldn't have access, right? One of the things we had talked about a couple of years ago was doing some more telehealth. And so now we kind of got forced into it. So I've been able to um, tell my story in Russia, in other places in the world, and, and hear other people's stories as well. And so that has been a excellent connection. I think the hard part um, that I have personally seen is people being able to get into treatment simply because of the, the nature of COVID itself, um, not not being able to, you know, they have to have the quarantine and, you know, a person with addictive disease, if they're at their peak, um, they're not going to make very good decisions. And that's not a diss, it's just a fact. And so part of you know, the immediate access that we used to enjoy, if you will, is not there right now. And it's very difficult to detox. Opiate detox is very painful. It uh, is, um, uh, you know, I I detoxed the old school way myself. I mean, I think I probably detoxed myself over 50 times over the course of a 20-year addiction. And um, I never knew I had a problem until I, I learned about that. And that was one of the things about the museum that was so powerful to me. I've known Mark Allen, who's the director of communications for almost my whole life since I started getting involved in music. And the thing that I really appreciated about that was the dialogue that that created between he and I, because 
in any other environment, I'm not sure he would have asked the questions that he asked because I came by my addiction through pain. Um, mm-hmm. in, in, in the museum exhibit, there's a couple places that, is, that isn't shy about the, the role that pharma and physicians inadvertently uh, put into this. This wasn't anything that anybody did on purpose. Um, I know that um, some of the pharmaceutical companies had uh, some responsibility and that's being dealt with in the legal system at this point. But the reality is, is that, you know, we just didn't know what we didn't know. And, and, and I think that's the thing that I appreciated also, not only about the personal stories, but the science behind it. And, and then the different, um, uh, the, the different art things like there was this one thing where you, where you would put your fingers down on something and it would light up and then, you know, just, it was so nice because these are the kinds of things that made it easy for me to be able to tell Mark how my addict brain works, you know, in recovery, um, I, you know, it's an illness that is progressive and fatal and whether we are able to stay chemical free or not, sobriety is a lifestyle. And that's the thing that I really appreciated about being able to share that with Mark is to be able to say, you know, just because I've been chemical free doesn't mean that my brain is any, any, I mean, I still have ongoing treatment. It's daily treatment. It's no different than any other chronic disease where our own behavior is part of the problem. Um, so with chronic pain, it's the very same thing. There are certain things I must do on a daily basis that aren't, I, I won't say they're painful, but they certainly aren't pleasant, but that help keep my pain at bay. Am I ever pain-free? Absolutely not. I've had 55 surgeries for what I was born with, so, um, but I have not had to use opioids uh, for, for 21 years. Now, I have had surgery, and I've had monitored uh, medications, uh, but my sobriety is the most important thing in the, in the world to me, and I would rather have acute pain for me personally. I wouldn't demand that from anybody else, but for me personally, but the thing that's nicest that we've learned ways to be able to help people manage their pain in a way that keeps an iatrogenic relapse, which means a relapse from the medical community at, at the least amount possible. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like when you're, when you're talking about how this exhibit is able to, um, give your voice, uh, I don't want to say give your voice a voice, but, but it it enables you to tell your story. Yes. (laughs) Um, and, and it sounds like, I mean, is this something that's just like you wish this was around, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago to be able to explain to people exactly what was going on? Yes, because, you know, and I, and I hope it stays there for a long time. And I hope people take their families there because I'll tell you something, there's a lot of healing that can be done in those rooms. Um, I was, there was a lot of healing between Mark and I. I mean, I can tell you back when he was doing uh, the music uh, critic for the Indie Star, you know, he saw me at the worst of my addiction and didn't understand. And now as a result of, of the time that we spent together there, he did. He learned some things. And I did too. Um, that's the other thing. Unfortunately, those of us with addictive disease don't see the dance that it takes inside of a family and how our families get hurt as well. And, and there's great um, uh, education on that at the museum as well. Is This is for families too. And this is an opportunity uh, for healing. I, I, I mean, I... I can't wait to see that place with lots of people in it. I'm really hopeful that as we finish up the pan, now not finish up, but as we get used to the new uh, normal with the pandemic, that we do get to see people there. And I think it can be a place where people can, um, can, you know, maybe if they're afraid to contact their doctor about it, maybe they can go there and learn a few things and, and reduce some of that fear. I mean, it's, it's a powerful, I, I cannot underscore enough how powerful that was for me to be there. 
And, and you're mentioning seeing a lot of people. Kathy, how has the pandemic affected uh, people getting out to this exhibit? Um, well, uh, it has obviously been difficult with reduced capacity and people's inability. The exhibition will be here through August, so we do hope that people will um, come this summer. And as Jim said, it, it is an opportunity for you to have conversations that you might not normally have um, and for you to, to hear things from each other. Um, and it may not be anyone in the group you're in, but it may be an aunt or, you know, somebody that you said, oh, that's why they do that. Oh, now I understand. Now I can better manage rather than judge. I can better understand um, my relationship with them. Um, so, yes, it, it, um, we did open the exhibition three weeks before um, the shutdown. Um, it, it has um, continued, um, unfortunately, to be very relevant um, to society. Um, what we do think is that, um, as Jim said, because people were in isolation, um, substance abuse can be a very isolating disease that maybe in that unto itself may help build some empathy for people um, to better understand what isolation really feels like and how it affects them. Um, because that is one of the main components of the disease um, and how community um, makes people feel better when they came out of um, that isolation to better understand why um, people with substance abuse disorder need that community. Um, and Indiana has a very strong community. We work with over 50 community partners um, to put this exhibition together. So there are lots of resources. Um, the state of Indiana um, helped fund this exhibition. They have worked very hard um, to provide places and information. And they saw this as an opportunity to also help get that message out um, that there is help, there is hope. Um, please reach out. Please reach out to one another. Um, please ask those questions, those difficult questions, and we hope we've given you an environment in which to ask them. Absolutely. Well, Jim, I don't know if you would mind sharing just a little bit about your, your personal journey. I think, you know, for people who are listening, you know, how did you know that you needed help? So for someone listening that's maybe kind of in the throes of this and isn't sure where to go or what to do, um, what was it like for you? I, I was treating non-cancer pain with opioids um, probably from the age of about 16. And um, over the course of time, um, I can tell you exactly the day that it changed for me. You know, it was doing its job as helping me with pain. Uh, but one day I remember taking, I hated drugs, by the way. <laughs> it's ironic. I wouldn't do any drugs um, in the music business. I barely I think I smoked pot a couple of times, didn't like them and didn't like alcohol either. Um, so, you know, it was interesting to me that here I was full blown addicted to pain medications, but never knew it. Um, when I finally did know it, it was very difficult because I was so ashamed. I, I had a huge amount of shame with it. Um, and that's what took me out of the music business to begin with was my addiction. It was nothing else but that. My health was poor, yes, but my addiction definitely didn't help it. Um, and unfortunately, it said feed me in a medical situation. So, you know, surgeries were not something that I minded um, that uh, because I'd get pain medicine after. Uh, but what ended up happening was um, I had gone through pain management uh, at the Cleveland Clinic in uh, 1991. And um, the addiction was not addressed at that point because at that particular time, there was still that thought process of if you were treating pain, you couldn't get addicted. And, and we've learned otherwise since then. 
And um, so uh, in 1999, I finally was at a point where I actually did start drinking alcohol, was adding that to my pain medications and couldn't stop. And I didn't know what to do. Fortunately, I, I was with people who understood this disease and didn't judge me and made a, a welcome mat for me. And so I went back to the Cleveland Clinic and that's where I did eventually get sober. But it was interesting in that it was a person with heroin addiction that really helped me. Um, you know, she she was the one who said, wait a minute, you had IV Demerol prescribed for you? I had to have stuff that was riding around my dealer's sock when it got to America. And, and, and it was like, oh, my gosh, I had no idea. Right. So so it was other people who were dealing with their addictions, who were coming into recovery, who really helped me the most. What also helped me was having the empathy of the healthcare people that were involved in my care. And at that time, you know, it was still stigmatized within the healthcare. Um, and there is still stigma there. It's just, I'm, that's what I love about the museum. I hate to keep going back, but it's so important that that takes that stigma part and lets us talk about it. That's because we're not going to get through it until we talk about it. We can sit there and be, you know, that thought process of, well, if it's not there, we just won't see it. Um, no, mm -hmm. it's, it, you know, it's got to be over. Now, again, I'm old school. My, my late sponsor was sober for 55 years before he passed away. So, you know, he, he had the, the old school thoughts, you know, you're an alky, you're a junkie, all those kinds of things. And, and I appreciate seeing the change of that versus, you know, cause that would be like, you know, my, my spina bifida, you know, well, you're, you're a crip. I heard that as a kid and those things do hurt. And today, no, you just got spina bifida. You have the disease of addiction and you have ways to manage them. And that's, what's great about uh, the recovery that I've been able to at least personally do over the last year. But what got me involved was to find out I wasn't um, a bad person. That's, that's what really finally did it because I hated myself for the things that I had done. I lied to physicians. I lied to people to get scripts. I lied to my family and it was a horrific dynamic. And, um, you know, it's, it's taken a long time for our family to heal. And, you know, I have, when, when I'm working with other people, I have to remind them that, you know, even today as I'm sober, you know, two decades plus, if my mother were to get a phone call at midnight, her first thought might still be, oh my gosh, she's in the hospital getting drugs again. And mm -hmm. that's okay, right? So before, you know, it's like, I've been sober three weeks. Why doesn't anybody trust me anymore? <laughs> you know, so again, that's the other part of the education process of this. And the more we learn about it, the less we're going to have stigma. And the more ways that we have to learn about it, the less we're going to have stigma. And that's, that's, that's wonderful. And again, you know, for me personally, this is... COVID's not been bad for me because it's gotten me as involved as I've gotten. I do a lot of 12-step um, uh, meetings in the evenings. I mean, I, I go to some myself, and I help um, uh, healthcare professionals that are in recovery um, as a pro bono thing. Uh, again, my health just took me out. I had to make that decision to say, okay, it's time to, time to let things be as they are and, and, uh, and live what I have left. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting. You're, you're mentioning how um, sort of the pandemic in a way, yes, it's it's caused some issues in, on one front for, for folks who are struggling. But at the same time, it's kind of opened up the world for others and given access to things that they may, may not have been able to have access to. Um, Kathy, with, with this exhibit, is this going to be the only health and social issue that you do? Or are you planning uh, other ones after this one wraps up? 
we actually um, recognize that, as Jim has said, this is not something that will be open. The exhibition will be here through August. And right now, um, people who are in the recovery community or um, working in the recovery community can come see the exhibition and utilize the code FIX 2021. Um, and have free admission to the museum. So we would really encourage people in the, in the recovery community um, to please um, come and visit the exhibition to, um, I hope, have the same um, experience that Jim had. But we have um, been able to put much of this um, into a digital, pro digital program. We had hoped that the schools would be a big audience for this because 11 and 12 year olds are the prime where they still listen um, to adults, it's a great opportunity um, for them to hear and better understand um, what they're about to go through um, in adolescence and adult life. Um, and we were hoping they could, but we've been able to put this into a program that will be digital um, and that teachers can have access and the public can have access. It is a similar but not the same experience because we know, um, as I said, this has been around for a long time. And um, we know that we wanted to be committed to helping the community as long as we could be of help. Um, so those programs will continue to live online for us. It will also be in Muncie um, next summer um, at Minatrista. Uh, so the exhibition will be um, available then as well. And so are there plans to tour this throughout the state? We do have 11 historic sites across the state of Indiana and they have been um, working on doing programming um, at each of the sites for the needs of the community they are in. Um, so in one community, a CVS pharmacist came and talked about um, naloxone and how to use it and all of those types of things. So you will see um, programming at each of our sites across the state um, while we're um, in this program. And as long as the community is interested, we will continue to offer those programs, naloxone training, um, that type of thing. Okay, sounds good. Wonderful. Jim, uh, are there any resources for our listeners who are tuning in right now before we head to break? Any resources uh, that they can tap into if they need help? Yeah, you can go online. You can um, look at alcoholicsanonymous.org, na.org, all the different 12-step type programs you can get in there as well. And then, of course, FIX 2021. Uh, if you put that in there, you're going to get more information about the, um, uh, the museum. And I wanted to add one thing. I, I, I really hope to get my grandkids there um, at some point simply because it is such a great place to, because there's, you're not too young to talk about health. Never. And, and mental health is just as important, if not, it's, it's just as important as any other health that we deal with. So I uh, and they love that Gramps is in recovery. They don't quite get it yet, but they're on their way to understanding that. And I like the fact that that dialogue's open and that's a great way to reduce stigma as well. I just want to say thanks for having me today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Jim Reiser, former director of chronic pain and chemical dependency at IU Health and uh, Indiana State Museum and Historic Sites CEO Kathy Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back after a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk to James McGrath, a Butler University researcher and author of the new book, What Jesus Learned from Women. This is All In. I'm Miriam So. This is All In. I'm Miriam So. There's a new book out that aims to shed light on Jesus's story, but through the lens of what he learned from women. That book, written by Butler University's James McGrath, is aptly titled What Jesus Learned from Women. In the book's introduction, McGrath approaches the topic with some trepidation, saying that some may question why a man would dare to write a book about women, particularly 
given the history of the marginalization of women's studies as an academic subject. With us to tell us more about why he decided to write this book and what he found out while putting it all together, I'd like to welcome James McGrath, who is the Clarence L. Goodwin Chair in New Testament Language and Literature in the Department of Philosophy, Religion, and Classics at Butler University. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So, James, what made you want to write about this topic? I think that's like the question on everyone's mind. Yes, and I was tempted to include that in the book somewhere. I give just a little snippet of it. I didn't realize how interested people would be in the backstory behind it. And sometimes by the time you've really started digging into a project, you lose track of exactly how the thought process developed. But I can tell you where it started because that's a very clear and vivid memory. It was brainstorming possible honors thesis topics with a student at Butler University. And this was a student who uh, was not majoring in religion, but uh, had taken, you know, had found her way to an interest in possibly going to seminary and was trying to find ways of exploring the relationship and whether there is a relationship, what the relationship could be between her Christian faith and her feminism. Are those two things compatible? What would that mean? And although I have a lot of side interests and I get to explore them sometimes at Butler University, my main field is New Testament, early Christianity, biblical studies. And so I immediately started thinking, what topic could she do that it would make sense for me to be the advisor on? I'm happy to direct her to somebody else who might advise her in doing something else. But as I started brainstorming, a lot has been written about Jesus teaching women and what's the role of women sort of as disciples. And when I'm looking for a topic where you can try to say something new, do something a little different, one of the things I sometimes do in my head is think, okay, so how do we invert that? What's what's the missing sort of other side of that coin? And so said, lots of people have written about what women have learned from Jesus and women learning from Jesus. What if you looked at what Jesus learned from women? And it really was just that off-the-cuff remark. The student was not at all interested in pursuing that and did a great honors thesis, but on a completely unrelated topic. But as I started thinking about this, I thought that maybe there was something here worth pursuing. Um, I'm that sort of ideas person that comes up with lots of creative thoughts, 99% of which need to be shot down by someone practical who says, yeah, no, that won't work, and here's why. Uh, I think this is part of that 1% that ended up being worth pursuing, and it really has been rewarding and transformative to work on it. I have to say, it's interesting uh, in your in your introduction how you tackled sort of as a man taking on this topic and how it, sort of in our day and age where we're sort of um, challenging some of these things, you know, just, just narratives constantly written about women by men and, and some of that stuff. So why did you feel necessary to address that in your introduction? Uh, because I thought people would have questions about that. Uh, and that was one where I thought people might go in with not just curiosity, how did this book come about, but yeah, why are you doing this? Uh, why should you in particular be doing this? Uh, why isn't somebody else doing this? Is this a worthwhile project? Uh, all those kinds of questions. Uh, I'm happy that I, I, I work in an institution where we've been encouraged to ask questions like who is on our, you know, on our syllabus, uh, who's in our bibliography, who are we assigning as reading, uh, who's underrepresented, things of that sort. Uh, but whether it's the effort for women's equality, whether it's efforts towards racial equality, uh, towards 
you know, uh, opposing marginalization of, you know, religious minorities or any group, oftentimes it's left for those who are in the group that is being marginalized or discriminated against to be the ones to fight for their inclusion and for their uh, treatment as equals. And so I feel that this should, this is something that, you know, women have written about and women have read about the things that women have written about this. And oftentimes men are neither writing about it nor reading what the women write about it. And it seems to me that men have to be part of the solution to this because, you know, ultimately to the extent that there has not been an inclusivity, you know, we are at the very least part of the problem, if not the, uh, the, the focus of the problem. Well, I noticed, um, I don't want to spoil the book for people who haven't read it, uh, but at the start of each sector, section or chapter, you have like a letter or a narrative that's told from a woman's point of view. Uh, I think the first one was from Mary, Jesus' yeah. mother. Where did you come up with the content for those um, narratives? And I think the other thing I was wondering is how did you decide to write it in modern English as opposed to, I, I'm thinking of like a more Shakespearean language, you know, like you yeah. used to think of the olden yeah. days and they talked yeah. a certain way. <laughs> Yes, uh, that's a good question. Let me let me address that last one first. Cause I think it's probably shorter. There there are still traditions of reading uh, the, the King James version of the the Bible, uh, and that's in literally in Shakespearean English, right? Translation from sixteen eleven. Uh, but the Bible is not in sort of Shakespearean Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. Uh, sometimes it is in a a different register than others. Sometimes authors are, have more polished ways of expressing themselves and things like that, but they were writing in the language of their time. And so I was aware of the fact that there were risks in making these people sound so modern that they no longer sound like authentic, ancient Mediterranean people. But if you make them too much uh, people of their time in a way that's not at least sort of translated for a modern audience and depicted for a modern audience, then people quickly say, why should I be reading this? And why is this interesting? And that really was the thing that got me started thinking about including some historical fiction. Oftentimes academics try to write for everyone. We, we try to convince publishers, we're gonna write for our fellow academics, but it's also going to be of interest for interested lay people, people in churches, uh, your grandma, your best friend, everyone who's possibly interested in this. and. Publishers are like, yeah, right. Uh, and know that if you try to please everyone, you don't actually please anyone. Uh, Murphy's Law kicks into effect. But I wanted it to at least be interesting for a general audience. I wanted to take the, some of the more you know, detailed discussions of some of the historical questions and things like that and put it into a form in which at least that could be accessible to a general audience and maybe also form a bridge to engaging with some of the detailed discussion that led into that. What I found to my surprise is that trying to write historical fiction of the events you're reconstructing in history actually is, I think, a really rigorous way of testing your historical ideas. I mean, I think we've all seen depictions of past events. Maybe it's even stuff that's lifted straight out of the Bible, but it's turned into a movie or a TV show or a, something like that. And it doesn't sound like a conversation you can actually imagine real human beings having. And that should tell us that something's wrong with the, with the reconstruction that we've come up with. And so I found myself actually rethinking some of what I initially was inclined to hypothesize because I tried to turn it into 
a story, tried to spell out what it would look like in practice, and found, yeah, that, that just doesn't sit right with me. Let me try a different approach to this. And so with, with the stories that you've um, put into this book, are these common stories that um, people of the Christian faith would already know, or are these some new things that you found in your research? Uh, there's a mixture of all of those. Women's stories are included sometimes more in the New Testament Gospels than they might have been in other literature at the time. And yet they're still not included to an equal extent. Uh, and even when people know them, they don't always know them to the same extent. If we even think about some of the characters, some of the stories, right? It's the Samaritan woman at the well. It's like, and her name was, it's like, if she was a man, would that have been included? Probably, mm -hmm. right? You get uh, women's stories not told as often, and then they're mentioned, but maybe they're not named and things of that sort. And so part of that effort was really to to try to give the women's voice a place in this because we don't always have that included in our ancient sources. And one of the things you wrestle with as a, as a historian or historical scholar is if the sources don't give you a perspective, do you say, well, sorry, I would wish I could offer you what women had to say in the ancient world, but the sources don't tell us enough. I don't have enough to go on. So there we go. And then you contribute to perpetuating the silencing of those perspectives. And so I think we have to have feel the freedom to fill in the gaps in what we know for, you know, with, with a reasonable degree of certainty, with what we know is generally the case, and then connect those dots so that we're not, we're not sort of silencing these women. But they are mostly stories that are known. Uh, there are only one or two where it, you know, and one in particular where I didn't think I would have enough to go on. And that chapter just surprised me that it even ended up included, much less you know, where, where it ended up. Were you expecting um, any sort of backlash or pushback when you released this book? I mean, it's, is it fully released yet? I don't, I don't want to mischaracterize. It is. Uh, it's, it's, it's brand new. It's just out. But it is, uh, I think, now shipping from all the places that are, are stocking it. And so it is now available. And yeah, I was expecting backlash. I was expecting that some people would say, you know, what do you mean Jesus learned? Right. Uh, it's like, I believe Jesus was God. And what does he need to learn from anyone? And then I expected backlash, people who might say, oh, sure, Jesus could have learned, but have qualms about Jesus learning from women, right? And that sort of patriarchal uh, stance on things. And so, yes, very much so. I'm also expecting some pushback from, from scholars who will say, okay, but the reconstruction here and things like that, but that's less of a worry. And that I'm actually looking much more looking forward to that. Uh, than I was to the other kind of backlash because um, I had to decide early on whether to try to write this in a way that at least attempted to sort of bend over backwards to try to bridge a gap and persuade people who would approach it with skepticism or even antagonism. And in the end decided, let me write for the people who are at least open to exploring this possibility. And then I can write some blog posts or other things to go along with it to try to try to uh, have the conversation with the skeptics and people like that. Yeah, I mean, I think religion is just one of those very um, touchy subjects, at mm. least in American culture, for some reason. So, um, you know, I, I would say, you know, have you, you you're mentioning that with, 
with this book, you you were expecting some some backlash here and there. W- would you say you were expecting it more from within the Christian community or or other religious communities as well? I think predominantly from uh, Christian communities, in which, ironically enough, they probably affirm as a point of doctrine that Jesus was human. Uh, they might even recite creeds that emphasize that he was fully human as well as fully divine. But in practice. Nobody has ever really figured out how those two are supposed to fit together in some kind of nice way that always consistently makes coherent sense. And so there's a longstanding tradition, I guess you could say, of when you don't know how to fit the two together, you sacrifice the humanity in order to affirm the divinity. But in practice, that often means that anything that has to do with Jesus being genuinely human gets overshadowed. And I think that it's actually an important point of Christian doctrine that If Jesus sort of knew everything, had nothing to learn, had nothing to, you know, none of that is part of his experience, in what sense was he fully human? There is also a direct denial of, you know, a clear statement in the Bible that Jesus grew in wisdom as he was growing, right? And so to deny that Jesus learned from any woman, like if you're going to even deny he learned from his mother, then I think you've probably in practice denied the humanity of Jesus, no matter what creeds you're reciting. Were there any uh, stories that you came across that surprised you at all? Uh, Yes, absolutely. Um, Again, I'm also wondering how much should I give teasers and uh, snippets and tidbits (laughs) and tantalizing things and how much, you know, should I just spoil things and how much should I keep people in suspense? There's always this balance, but There is a figure named uh, Joanna uh, mentioned in the Gospel of Luke, who I thought, yeah, I don't think there's going to be enough to say about her. You know, we just don't know enough. And then the possibility that she was the same person as another woman mentioned in the New Testament in one of Paul's letters came to my attention and led to interesting places. There's a story in the Gospel of John. Uh, It's not in our earliest manuscripts, but it's, it's, it's in some of them, about a woman who is accused of adultery being... uh, taken before Jesus, who's asked, you know, what do you say we should do in this case? And he said to write, like to trace his finger on the on the floor, on the ground. And people have often wondered, I mean, people throughout history, uh, down the ages, down the centuries have wondered, what was he writing? Why was he writing? What's the significance of that? And actually, yeah, I, may, I may not have come up with the definitive answer. We'll see what people say. But I came up with an answer that, to my knowledge, nobody had come up with before. And it was as a result of trying to approach this through the eyes of of the, the main female character in this story, and also the question of what Jesus might have learned from that encounter. So what's next after this book? Um, are you, are you going to do what Jesus learned from men? <laughs> uh, well, sort of, sort of in a sense. Uh, the uh, <laughs> next big New Testament-related project is probably going to be about John the Baptist, and there's a very real sense in which, you know, Jesus is baptized by him. The question of whether Jesus was sort of part of John's movement before he is uh, doing his own thing is one that historians investigate. And so there is a sense in which that's a natural place to go after this. Uh, but I do have a couple of other things I need to finish off before that one. Uh, but I'm looking forward to digging into that and uh, seeing if the, the things I worked on in connection with this project uh, flow naturally into that one. And so uh, where can we get this book for, for listeners who are tuning in? Uh, so it's 
published by Cascade. It's, uh, that's an imprint of Whip and Stock. It's available on Amazon. It's available from you know, like christianbooks.com. It's available, I think, from most places. And if you want to support local bookstores, then you know, ask them to get it in. Uh, I'm pretty sure they can oblige. I've seen some, some mentioning it in their holdings already. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure to learn more about this book. And um, we look forward to uh, keeping in touch with the rest of your work that you put out. Thank you so much and have a great rest of your day. And that was James McGrath, the Clarence L. Goodwin Chair in New Testament Language and Literature in the Department of Philosophy, Religion, and Classics at Butler University. Our producers are Drew Dodlin, Micah Yason, and Tim Brooks. Scott Cameron is our managing editor. Christopher Flood filled in as our engineer today. If you'd like a podcast of this show or any past show, you can find it anywhere you get your podcasts. Join us tomorrow for an encore presentation of our show on COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at All in Indiana if you want to reach out. I'm Miriam Soap. Thanks for listening. This is All In.